Hey guys, have you heard about this wizard, Howl? Oh yeah, he's great. He's that guy with all that magic, right? Yeah, he's got a moving castle. But you know what really moves my heart whenever I see him? Yeah, and that castle, it just seems like a great place to curl up in a ball and cuddle with somebody, you know? Oh yeah, that's for sure. And he has all those dreamlike illusions, right? Yeah, that's true, but really, I think he's the dreamiest part of it all. I've also heard he's a master chemist, and he can create all these charms and potions. Oh, I definitely feel the chemistry. Yeah, and he is rather charming. Oh, it's true, it's true. Guys, are we all thinking the same thing? Yes. Oh, you know it. fantasy fans and welcome to swords and satire the podcast where we turn low fantasy into high art i'm your dungeon manager jamie mogul my pronouns are he and him and i am here with my magical co-hosts i'm cassidy my pronouns are they them and i'm disguised as a scarecrow so i can like travel around the countryside oh that seems like a good way to kind of blend in Exactly. I have a uh, carrot for a head. It's a very large carrot, you know. Wow, that must be like county fair winning carrot. I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the biggest carrot you've ever seen. You can't even imagine how big it is. You what? did you <laughs> You did look unusually delicious today, so maybe that explains it. The carrot oh. for a head. <laughs> Because I like carrots, you see. Ah, oh, yes. Ah, uh, great. Spicy. Great. <laughs> That's right. Spicy carrot. <laughs> <laughs> well, but that's just great. And who am I? Who are you? I'm Jack Olander. My pronouns are any and all. And I'm just, you know, a spirit at 3 a.m. dancing around someone who is just tripping balls with the boys. <laughs> <laughs> oh okay that sounds like a lot of fun oh for some of us but you know it's pretty wacky we get up to some shenanigans we 3am spirits I'm sure you do oh yeah I, I think our cat Odin might be a 3am spirit too I oh I think she is yeah, yeah. <laughs> well guys I'm really excited to talk to you today because we're going to be discussing the Studio Ghibli classic animated film howl's moving castle it's a classic now and it's almost 20 years old stick that in your mind and get N fucked <laughs> yeah no thank you i don't want to i do remember seeing this movie in the theaters and not yeah. being terribly impressed with it the first time but has that 
stayed the same over these 18 years since its release? I guess we're going to find out. So, this film was released in 2004 by Studio Ghibli, headed by the ineffable Hayao Miyazaki, director of such films as Spirited Away, Nausicaa and the Valley of the Wind, and of course, another film that we've already talked about previously, Princess Mononoke. That's right. Probably my favorite Ghibli film. This man cannot be effed. <laughs> that is maybe true. I'm not sure. You said he was ineffable. I did. <laughs> and after all that evidence, I'm convinced. Now, is the main character Howl? Or is, is the titular character of this film Howl effable? We'll find out before too long here. I think we all know the answer to that. Hyper effable. <laughs> but before we get too deep into the film and its characters, take of that, <laughs> make, of, make of that what you will. I think Cass has a little summary ready to go. So, this is an isekai film, a quaint isekai film. Is it? No. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of cleaning. Yes. Is that what makes an isekai? There's a lot of sleeping and eating breakfast. I thought for an isekai you had to travel to a magical world. Oh, there's magic. But first... Sophie cleans up the castle. But Sophie stays in her world, right? Yeah. Effectively, the story is reminiscent of an isekai because she goes from a mundane, magicless life to a magic full life. I suppose. Are you saying that haberdashery is not a magical art? I mean, in the right hands, it could be. <laughs> there were some pretty magical hats. Exactly. Dashing, even. Sophie is taken out of her mundane life by a meet-cute with a magical boy named Hal. Living the dream, Sophie. And then a jealous witch called the Witch of the Waste casts a spell on her, turning her into an old woman. And uh, the curse is that you can't talk about the spell. And it pretty much makes her awesome. Yeah, she turns into an old woman. Except for when she isn't. <laughs> she. Fl- <laughs> <laughs> I suppose the same could be said of all of us. Yeah. She fluctuates throughout the film back into her younger self and then into an old woman. It's hard to keep track why until a scene that we'll talk about later. But it seems that it might be regulated by her emotions. Yes. So, she eventually is trying to seek out help to have this curse taken off of her. Aren't we all? I think she's looking for the Witch of the Waste. She goes into the Waste. It's a uh, good place to find the Witch of the Waste. She wants her to undo the spell. What she finds is this quirky castle that is uh, slapped together and is just kind of moving around on its own, you know? Now, am I to believe that regular castles do not move around? Typically not. Hmm. You know, you move around them. Interesting. Mm-hmm. 
On her way to the castle, she also found a scarecrow friend with a turnip for a head, and she calls him Turnip Head. A descriptive name. Yeah. So when she's in the castle, she just kind of stops in the kitchen and like sleeps by the fire, where she meets Calcifer, the living flame. I believe he's a fire demon. Yeah, sounds about right. Yep. He tries to make a deal with Sophie and succeeds. And Wow, this is all coming together very nicely. Uh, I think she agrees to feed him if... Or, no, she agrees not to kill him if he will make her breakfast. This is a great deal. <laughs> and, uh, and kill him by throwing water on his face. But, uh... Turns out this is Howell's castle, and he's got an apprentice named Markle, who is learning how to make spells and potions. He's a little guy. That's yeah. true. He's a kid, but he can make himself look like a little old man. And he can also stop whenever he wants, unlike Sophie. <laughs> yeah. True. Turns out they operate in different kingdoms. As, like, different wise men who can do spells for people as a way to make money. And they have a portal in their front door to, like, kind of attach the castle to their shop front no matter where the castle is. It's magic, people. This is a classic hustle. Yeah. yeah. You have a magical door that goes to many different towns with your sign for your magical wizard business right there. And, uh, you know... Then profit. Yeah, it's magic, people. Ever heard of it? Everyone has it. Oh, well, that's a nice message. Yeah. We're all magical in our special ways. Mm -hmm. And Hal's a beautiful man. A real David Bowie type, I would yeah. say. He comes home. He's got his glorious blonde hair. He can shapeshift into a crow man. Some may say even sexier that way. I don't know. Uh, Decide for yourself, listeners. But he's one of the most powerful wizards out there. And uh, Sophie becomes his cleaning lady. <laughs> <laughs> hmm, hold on a second. <laughs> and uh, she eventually falls in love with him, but he's kind of selfish and doesn't really notice until it's almost too late. Too late for what? Their love to blossom. <laughs> and to have a human form. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that is not required in a lot of anime, I feel like. Yeah, true. I'm just letting that sink in for a sec. <laughs> Please do. So in the background, there's like a war going on between the kingdoms. Yeah, one of those minor wars that's going to threaten all of mankind. And it's kind of unclear why it's even happening for a while. But, uh... There's always been war with Oshinia. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, they kind of, like, clean up the castle, eat together, just get to know one another. Phew, this movie's a thrill a minute. <laughs> Eventually, Hal can't ignore all the summons he's getting to the different kingdoms he's a part of. So he does what any self-respecting wizard would do and sends his <laughs> one of his staff members in his stead. Why be a wizard if you don't have a team of people to go do everything for you that you don't want to do? He just wants to stay in bed with his blanket and doesn't want to do a responsible thing, kind of like a millennial. <laughs> or Damn! Like, 
Or like any workplace. The boss just relaxes and then sends someone else to do it. True. Yeah, good point, Jack. Yeah. So she goes to visit Madame Solomon. Good thing he's cute is all I'm going to say. That's fair. Yeah. He shows up in disguise. Turns out he was following her the whole time. He wasn't a lazy bastard all along. That's right. And the whole thing was a trap by Madden Solomon, who used to be Hal's teacher. Now I think he taught her a lesson. And she was telling Sophie that Hal, that a demon ate Hal's heart. And that's why he's so selfish. And she doesn't feel like she can trust him with all that magic. And Sophie says that there's more to him than that. And they basically face Madame Solomon together and escape with the Witch of the Waste who's been turned into a decrepit old woman. She lost her magic. Oh, and, well. And Heen, Madame, Madame Solomon's dog who kind of wants to just pal around with Sophie and crew now. This dog's like, fuck working for the queen or whatever. I'm out of here. They escape from her. Eventually, they can't ignore the war any longer because... They make it back to Sophie's hometown and Hal created a new portal so that her old hat shop is now attached to, magically to his castle. And uh, she seems disappointed by this, uh, like she doesn't think that Hal thinks much of her. Uh, but then the war has come to their doorstep. I hate when that happens. And Hal is fighting them in his crow man form. I and, love when that happens. Yeah. And, he admits that he's doing it to save Sophie. And that's when she looks young again because she feels love for him. And uh, eventually they escape from there and decouple the castle from all of the portals and it like falls apart <laughs> because something happened to Calcifer. Calcifer and Hell are linked together. And. It was actually the Witch of the Waste who had a crush on Hal, who tried to <laughs> steal uh, Hal's heart from inside of Calcifer. She was burning up, so Sophie doused them with water, and it harmed Hal and Calcifer. Eventually, she convinces Calcifer. the Witch of the Waste to give ha- uh, her th- Calcifer, and she returns Hal's heart to his body, and the quote-unquote demon Calcifer has been freed. And um, Sophie's all young, and she has silvery hair, and she and Hal, they are hooking up. They're they're going to go down to Bone Town, Bonesville. They, <laughs> down to the Bone Depot. They kiss, so she's practically pregnant already. Two for one sale at the Bone Depot. Now, hold on. You're telling me that in this wild, magical story, it was true love all along that was the secret to unlocking the curse? I think so. Whoa. And then they live happily ever after in an even better castle that flies now. <laughs> I guess the sequel's going to be called Howl's Flying Castle. <laughs> or Castle in the Sky. <laughs> I think that's copywritten. <laughs> I can't wait for Porco Rosso to shoot them down. <laughs> <laughs> in the dark... <laughs> Gritty sequel. Non-lethal, of course. It's Porco Rosso. Fair. That's fair. I haven't seen it. (laughs) Isn't Patrick Stewart Porco Rosso in the American uh, version, in the English version? Find out next week on... (laughs) Uh, Yeah, about that. 
And then our theme song. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that was a hell of a summary. We should probably head into the delve. Welcome to the Delve, where we venture deep into the themes, scenes, and lore of Howl's Moving Castle. Now, guys, I have been told, and tell me if I'm wrong, but I have been told that war never changes. It's true. Yeah, it stays the same. So, much of this film has the backdrop of this war that's going on between these kingdoms. We only really get little details and we get the perspective from the characters that you know some people think that the war is bad Howell says that it's a stupid war that you know he's tired of all this fighting we get a flashback to his backstory where we kind of get the feeling that he might have had innocence as a child that was lost due to the constant battling that was going on And I read some analyses, and some people thought that this film was using an overly simplistic anti-war message. And I want to ask you guys, is any anti-war message ever inappropriate? I was just talking to one of my buddies last night. We were on the uh, streaming service that is very popular. uh, Tubi, I see. Not that one. And... uh, We saw a poster for a movie called Pearl Harbor Minute by Minute. Oh, my God. And I was like, you know, I really don't think I want to see that. (laughs) I think that sounds pretty bad. I was like, do you think there's, like, other minute by minute documentaries? And he was like, my friend is Japanese. He's like, yeah. Oh, there definitely are. In Japan, one that they watch a lot is Hiroshima Minute by Minute. Ooh, wow. And he was saying that in our high school that we both went to. There's this class where we talk about racial sensitivity, sexual orientation, and things like that. For the racial sensitivity part, he showed scenes from the Hiroshima clip minute by minute because he had heard some A-bomb insensitive jokes around the Uh. school. He was like, hey, guys, this was actually really awful, and it happened. And so he was showing some clips from it, and someone in the class made the argument, of course they're high schoolers, empathy isn't fully developed yet. Yeah. But someone in the class was like, you know, if they didn't drop the nuke, and this is an argument I've heard a lot of times, if they didn't drop the nuke, how many more lives would have been lost from an invasion, right? I have also heard this argument. But my buddy's argument was... That war is bad. And that was what the person responded with. But the nukes saved more lives than they took. It's just like, okay, but that proves the point that war is bad. (laughs) Because you're trying to justify a nuclear strike on a city. Two nuclear strikes on cities. With all these civilians just going about their daily lives. All of their hopes and dreams and fears and relationships and... Just trying to get by, and uh, they're snuffed out in an instant. Yeah. I've said on a Reddit page, r slash history memes, just like, war is bad. And you would not believe the backlash that received. I'm not saying that, like, yeah, uh, okay, even, uh, let me rephrase that. Even if you think there is place for war, why do you disagree that it's bad? (laughs) You know what I'm saying? I don't think you, like, 
have a respectable insight into anything if you don't understand that war is bad. <laughs> if that's like that, that's a foundational stone, in my opinion. It kind sure. of invalidates your brain. There, there might be cases that, and I'm not taking a stance on this one here right now without a lot of more context. There might be stances that war is a necessary evil or that war has, you know, reasons for happening. You know, World War II would come to mind as a war that that certainly happened and had reasons for happening. There was a second <laughs> world war. But this film was actually made in response to the Iraq war. Yes. Miyazaki was incredibly affected by and upset about the Iraq war and the injustices that he saw going on at the time period that this film was made. And I can't help, because I also saw parallels to this movie and World War II and the images of what accounts to like a nuclear attack with the use of magic and bombings and everything. And what I would say is kind of an Oppenheimer-like response from a character like Howell who has used his magic for combat and is kind of horrified by what he's had to do and is living with this guilt and regret about his role that he has taken in past wars. That's right. A lot of the scenes we get of the military in this film are they're dropping firebombs on civilian houses and shops. Yes. Yeah. Which is a big World War II thing. Uh, Tokyo was burnt down by firebombs. Right. And so was Dresden. In Germany. London, I believe, was, London. was bombed. Yeah, yeah London yeah. bombings. Yeah. Everywhere. So that was definitely a World War II thing. Yeah. That's what I was thinking of. And um, I was also noticing how they show in this movie that war can cause those who are involved to lose their humanity. And in this movie, it happens literally. <laughs> right. Yes. To the wizards that are involved, they become these amorphous blob-like monsters and they're not able to change back into humans anymore when they use their magic to harm others like that. And Howl is actually struggling with that. Every time he changes into that big crow-like entity he can change into, he risks not being able to change back into a human anymore. That's right. It is literally going to eventually dehumanize him and howell plays an interesting part in this war because like we mentioned in the summary he was trained by the national sorceress right, right? solomon madam solomon yeah she seems to run like all the magical aspects of the kingdom yeah it's like a magical military organization yeah including the training of young witches and warlocks and it seems like from what we've gathered howell was taken in as a child to be trained by this like military figurehead as a tool of a kingdom a soldier and an oppressor he's effectively a child or was a child soldier yeah. So when you're talking about, like, the loss of innocence through war, I think it also ties into the theme of freedom, which they mention a lot, and I think it's one of Howell's driving characteristics in the film. Yeah, he is called a coward throughout the film for 
expressing his pacifism to some extent. And yes. it's not until later in the film when he sees that Sophie is being threatened that he finally decides, I'm going to stop being a pacifist at least until this war is over and he's going to try to turn the tide. But it is kind of a loss of self and it almost does strip him of his humanity. Right. Before that, we see Howell in multiple scenes fighting soldiers from both sides of the war. He, in his nighttime raids, is attacking enemy ships in his bird form, but we also see him sabotaging his own side's warships. Right. In scenes like when they're in the field of flowers and he uses his crow hand to, like, sabotage the power on the ship. Yeah, it's actually a pretty interesting scene where they're in the flower field and Sophie asks, like, what side is that ship from? And Hal says, does it even matter? Yeah. Before he, he says peacefully disarms the ship or, you know, non-lethally to the crew brings down the warship. Yeah. And that field of flowers is actually his special place. He used to practice his magic in as a child or as a youth um his uncle gave it to him as his place to study there's a cabin there right and that's where he was before he was recruited as a youngster so this was like this place of peace for him that he is now seeing a warship flying even just like transporting through that offends Howell to the point where he's like, no, I'm just going to bring down this ship. I don't even care anymore because I'm seeing this important space for me being desecrated by the presence of a warship. And he's so powerful. He's able to do that from a distance and they don't seem to be aware that he's the one who did it. Yeah. They Howell's just, got some magic. Yeah, they just start attacking him and he seems not worried about it at all he's having a fine time of it there's a reason that solomon and the other kingdom and everyone kind of wants howl on their side he's a strong wizard um madam solomon says that he's the strongest wizard she's ever known Mm-hmm. and the war we haven't even mentioned what it's about yeah what we, is any war about we should probably let people know the war started because the prince of the neighboring kingdom went missing. That's right. And we find out at the end of the movie when Sophie gives Turniphead a kiss on the cheek and turns into the missing prince that he was cursed like she was by just some random witch. That's right. Yeah. Turnip Turniphead was actually the missing prince, but in my heart, Turniphead was always a king. Yes, that's right. Like, but in a good way, not an actual king who I would not like and would actually be against. But the prince does not seem horribly upset by this situation. He got cursed and joined this found family and just had a fine time. But the prince went missing. Those two nations went to war with each other immediately. Yeah. So it's like the war was so trivial. It was... Right. Even if he had just stayed a scarecrow, killing each other would have done nothing to solve the problem. So the war was always a mistake. I mean, but also I think that it's supposed to represent how these nations were already on the precipice of war and they just needed that little push. Yeah, I mean, definitely. this is this is what we see 
throughout real world history too. It's the nation states fighting against one another and the common folk are caught in the crossfire and they're the ones that really suffer for it. It's true. We don't see the king or Madame Sulemane suffering at all no. in this film. The king is having fun yeah. with the war. The king's just going out, jaunting around, going in the battle, and just having a good old time of it. Yeah. Prick. Yeah. yeah. When he comes in to report to Sulemane, he's like, has this big gregarious personality. He's like, oh, this new design is great. We're going to wallop their asses. Right? Oh, God. It's like, and then we see civilian homes getting burned down later in the movie. It's a game to him. Yeah. yeah. He's playing game. He's It's chess. He's playing a deadly game with people's lives. Yeah. And Sulemane doesn't have to go out either. She just has all these little children. Yeah. That she, like Howell, has just taken into her servitude. And she just is puppeting her trainees yeah and they all look the same so she probably put a spell on them to all look a way that she wanted them to that's right she's literally molding them to her vision and it seems to be like a little version of howl yeah. it does yeah she's made all of her it, it seems that she has made all of her child apprentices look like howl did at that age except with blonde hair didn't that's he have right. blonde hair as a kid no. no. His oh. his natural hair color is a dark brown or black. And um it turns to that after Sophie mixed around his potion bottles in the bathroom and he couldn't get his hair color right. <laughs> he could have been keeping his hair blonde because of Solomane doing that to him when he was young, though. It's possible. The reason, yeah. So he was kidnapped by her, supposedly, or recruited, whatever you'd like to say. But he had his freedom stripped from him as a child. And his whole life was basically dictated to him by Sulemane. People were always telling him what he was going to grow up to be and how to live his life. Yeah. And so he ran away. And he kept running and hiding and practicing his art in disguise in different places so that she couldn't find him. He's portrayed as a coward, as you guys mentioned, for this. And he's portrayed as being selfish, but really it's more of a noble act because he's so powerful. He's not letting Solomon use him right. in her game of war, basically. That's right. Uh, as we mentioned, he has these multiple shops across the land. That he uses as, like, disguises for himself in places of business. And he has multiple aliases. Uh, one of them is the Wizard Jenkins, and the other one is the Wizard Pendragon. Uh, right. Like, Ar uh, like Arthur Pendragon, you could say. Or, like, Leroy Jenkins. But, <laughs> so it uh, just goes hard. Yeah, yeah. But uh, Sophie asks him, like, oh, how many aliases do you have? He says, as many as I need to keep my freedom. That's right. Yeah. I love that line. Yeah. I was just going to say, there's also rumors about how that we get to hear the co some of the common people saying, some of Sophie's friends and co-workers, they are gossiping about him and wondering if he can see them. He's a handsome, magical boy. Uh, but then there's also these dangerous rumors about him that, oh, he'll eat the hearts of pretty girls. Right. And it must have to do with the fact that he lost his heart. And that's what Jamie's talking about, his loss of innocence. He lost his heart 
Which I'm told is a severe medical condition. Yeah. When he merged with this demon, it's almost like when his magic bloomed and erupted. Right. Uh, well, when he became a valuable tool of the Empire, he lost his heart. Yeah. And that's his loss of innocence. He, Yeah. And so he's thought of as kind of like selfish because of that. But I think we've interpreted it a different way. Well... At the end of the movie, when Howell is getting his heart back, Sophie is like, oh, it's so small. And Calcifer says, yeah, it's still the heart of a child. Right? Yeah. Which, I mean, literally it is. Right. But also, he's only developed recently because of his relationship to Sophie and his enemies, which have multiple of them have become his friends throughout the course of the film. The Witch of the Wastes, he yeah. invites into his home. Uh, the Suleiman's dog, Heen, he yeah. invites into his house. And so each time he and Markle, Hal and Markle are saying, oh, our family's growing, you know. Yeah. So I wanted to talk a little bit about like the idea of children are seen as innocent, right? Yeah. And Howell is pretty childish throughout the movie in the sense that he always runs away, which isn't a bad thing, but it's what he has taken to doing. He throws tantrums. He does. Yeah. There's the scene, like you mentioned, where his hair bottles get switched around, his hair dye, and it's dyed orange, and he goes into a severe depression yeah. and, like, nearly kills I found himself that a, I by found accident. that offensive. Yes. He nearly kills himself by accident. Calcifer almost goes out. He Hal says, I don't understand the point of living if I can't be beautiful. Yes. You know, it's funny because hair is a repeated theme and motif throughout this entire film, too. Sophie's transformation is, of course, precipiced with the change of her hair color. Howell's hair color change is this big dramatic event for him. And it's Sophie giving her hair to Calcifer, cutting off her ponytail and feeding it to Calcifer that empowers the fire demon in a way that is able to help them escape. Yeah, absolutely. He asks for her eyes. <laughs> yeah. She, he takes her hair as a, as a pale substitute, I guess, yeah. but it seems to work. Imagine what I could have done with your eyes or your heart. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, people's hair does seem to be kind of a source of their power or their essence. Yeah. I think that could be a thing in Japan. Because it used to be the tradition to grow your hair out and put it in a bun. Right. And uh, typically when there's a huge shift in your life, like typically a loss, I'm pretty sure. You cut the bun off and then you start over. It's to show like the end of a relationship or the death of a loved one, the loss of a job, things like that. Yeah. And so I think that practice is still somewhat less formally carried out today. But the idea that when something big happens, you chop all your hair off. Right. So I have no way to mark my transitions, I guess, to new life paths. And you such. grow a beard knot. True. Yeah. And then cut it off. <laughs> and then cut, cut my it beard. Off. <laughs> no, I mean, that's really interesting, Jack. Uh, I think that that does kind of come up, especially with Sophie's hair. Yeah. The hair color change, the way her ponytail changes throughout the film based on her 
mental state and her feelings. Sometimes it's even when she's in her older body, sometimes it's thick and full and long. And sometimes it's just a little like rat tail. Yeah. And then eventually she's able to give this big chunk of her hair to Calcifer to give him power. It's true. You're right. I didn't think about that, but it's very true that even as her age fluctuates with her emotions, her hair does as well. Yeah. Yeah. When she's a little old woman, it's just a tiny little braid. Yeah. And when she's feeling kind of weak or vulnerable or afraid. And that, Jack, could relate to what you're saying about when you experience a loss, you might cut off a full head of hair. When she is at her oldest and most frail, when she's having like her back pain and trouble moving and everything, she has the little rat tail. Yeah. And when she's more vivacious and feeling younger and fuller of you know energy that's when she has the long thick ponytail yeah you know guys the characters in this film derive their power in part through their hair yeah but we here at swords and satire we derive a lot of our power from our patrons that's true which not unlike hair are magical entities and sources of our power sure their support gives us life. <laughs> it keeps my heart beating. Yeah, in so your I really, chest. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Yeah. So if people want to keep our hearts literally beating, what can they do to help out? Well, if they're so inclined, they could go to patreon.com slash swords and satire and check out the different tiers we offer and join our patron community. We always appreciate the support and our lives. So that would be really nifty. <laughs> they also get to vote on movies that we watch each month and they get bonus episodes. Seems like a pretty good deal. Now that's one heck of a deal. <laughs> so I think that segues pretty nicely to us talking more about Sophie because we've talked a lot about Howl so far. True. But Sophie's the main character we follow in the movie. That's right. True. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about how hot and pretty and sexy and amazing Howell is, right? That's accurate. You know who has horrible self-esteem issues when it comes to physical appearance? Calcifer? No, I think he's actually pretty okay on that front. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, he's hot. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. <laughs> But Sophie, from the beginning of the movie, when she's making hats in the shop, her co-workers are talking about how Howell is coming. I think those are her sisters, right? Her sisters, yeah. And they're like, ooh, Howell is coming. Uh, uh, I heard he eats pretty girls' hearts. And they're like, well, Sophie doesn't have to worry about it. Right? What the fuck is yeah. up with that? Yeah, yeah. And Sophie's just, like, takes that to heart. And we hear her mention when she's talking to her best friend, Lottie, she says the exact same thing in that conversation. It's this negative self-talk that's really got her, like, in kind of a holding pattern for her life. Exactly. Someone tells her she's not pretty. Minutes later, she's telling someone else that she isn't pretty. She's get, She is repeating that voice. I mean, this is a realistic cycle that people go through when yes. you are told something about yourself whether it's that you're not attractive enough that you're not smart enough people will really start to internalize that and it will kind of guide their self-perspective yeah 
It's self-image. true. I'm thinking of a scene later in the movie when Hal is showing Sophie his flower field and she turns back into a young woman because it's so beautiful. It's like touching. Yes, because and, the flowers are so beautiful. Uh-huh. And um, <laughs> she says something again that's self-disparaging about how she's not beautiful or like doesn't deserve it or something. And Hal says, but Sophie, you're so beautiful. What are you talking about? Kind yeah. of. This and, is like the first time she's ever heard that, it seems like. Yeah. And uh, she can't accept it because everybody else has always told her the opposite and she believed them. Yeah. And so she turns away. And when she turns back, she's an old woman again. And she says, at least when you're old, nothing really seems to bother you. And Hal just kind of looks crushed. Yeah. Aww. You don't have anything left to lose, she says. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, there is an element of Sophie's early story that I think is not so bad. And it's that she is happy being a hatter. Like, she's content with it. Now, she is being set up in this perspective of like, oh, well, you're not pretty enough. So you're never going to find like a husband or whatever, because she's living in a very heteronormative society. But she's content as a hatter, and she's content with herself in some ways. I think she's accepted it. She doesn't seem very happy to me. Maybe not. That's she a good sighs point. a lot. She's not close to anyone in her family or anyone around her. She doesn't have friends until she goes to live with Howell and, and his crew, and they start calling themselves a family. Right. She has the one friend, Letty. True. Who works at the bakery, but it's not perfect because Letty is sort of like everything that Sophie is told that she isn't. Right. Yeah. Letty is pretty. All the guys want to help her out all the time. She's fond over. She works at a very popular establishment. And Sophie is ignored pretty much the entire time except by Letty. True. Yeah. So, yeah. Until she finds other people that are kind of like misfits, she doesn't fit in very well. Yeah, I mean, there's a sad, kind of funny line right after Sophie is cursed, where she says something like, well, at least my age will finally match my fashion sense. Yeah, it's yeah. true. She always wears this kind of pale blue dress. People is like, people say it's not nice. Right. And even later in the film, when Howell is sending Sophie out disguised as his mom, he her dress is, like, shiny all of a sudden, right? She puts on this straw hat she always has. He goes, you're going to wear that hat after I used all that magic to make your dress look pretty? <laughs> <laughs> She's proud of the hat. It's a cool hat. She probably made that hat. Yeah, I think it's a badass hat. I bet she did. Yeah. She's a hat maker. Yeah. Right? yeah. yeah. It's rough. And uh, <laughs> the the film kind of shows you that all of those beauty standards don't make people happy and they don't make for a fulfilling life. Most of the people that pursue that seem kind of vapid and flighty. Yes. Especially her mom. Yeah. And there's some interesting stuff with her mom in this film. Yeah. That we'll get to. But as Howell moves away from being obsessed with his looks... And starts focusing on his relationships. And as Sophie does the same, they grow happier and closer with the people around them. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And none of that was really made possible until she was an old woman, right? Yeah. I 
in so many ways, it was like a curse, but it was like so much of a blessing for her. It got her out of her comfort zone. Yeah. She was going to, we can assume, she was going to just live her life kind of quaintly in the hat shop, which I actually don't think is too terrible, but for the perspective character of the film... She didn't like it. She didn't like it necessarily. She had just kind of come to accept it. But also, it wasn't ambitious enough to be the main character of an adventure movie, right? She needed to go out. She had to, like I said, get broken out of her comfort zone and go and find a reason, a call to adventure, as it were. Yeah, that happened uh, when she was walking on her way home from the hat shop. Or out somewhere. It was unclear because I thought she lived in the hat shop. But while she was walking through a shortcut through an alley, these two soldiers stopped her and were Mm. harassing her. And trying to pick up on her. She didn't want to have anything to do with them. It was gross. Yeah. She had her hat pulled low. They kept peeking under her hat to see her face. And they were like, oh, she's pretty. Yeah, they kept calling her mousy and pretty. And it was just very uncomfortable. I know, and they kept coming on to her way too strong. She was starting to feel unsafe, and it seemed like a dangerous situation that could get out of hand quickly. It definitely was, if you know the grim realities of what happens during military occupations. Yeah. And I will leave it at that. And then... Hal shows up out of nowhere, says that he was due to meet her and acted like he knew her and then used magic to make the two men march away. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, this that was good. And then that was their meet cute. And he walked with her saying, sorry about that. But uh, I'm also being followed, by the way. (laughs) Right. It wasn't a completely selfless act because it was also a way for Hal to escape the blob demons that were hunting him on behalf of the Witch of the Waste. And also, however, it was like destiny. Yeah. Sure. Oh, because there's time loop shenanigans. There are. We should talk about that. Yes. We mentioned that there's the magical door in the castle that can take you to different locations. Yeah, the portal. Which are predetermined. And they kind of set up Chekhov's black portal <laughs> earlier in the film. And when Sophie takes it at the end of the film... It leads to Hal's childhood. Right. And she sees the moment that he made a deal with Calcifer, giving up his heart. And Sophie says, I know how to help you now. Come and find me in the future. Right. And so he does. And then right when she comes out of the door, Howell is waiting for her there in his bird form. That's right. Nearly dead. <laughs> yeah. And um, after that is when she heals him by returning his heart. That would heal me too. But um, I need that to live. This movie also reminds me of, or speaks to me as an allegory for grief and loss and the depression that kind of go along with that. Sophie's father died in the near past in in the story. And it seems like She's grieving over him, and she's the one that was hit the hardest by that loss. And that's part of what has contributed to her isolation, her social isolation. She doesn't care much about what she wears, and her sisters kind of ridicule her for that. And then 
they're kind of callous and uncaring and only that only uh, serves to further her feelings of isolation. Her mother's going around trying to get new boyfriends and uh, trying to dress up for that. Yeah, her mom's not in a good place either. And um, Howl's also going through a period of deep grief and loss over the loss of his innocence in losing his heart. Which he's been dealing with, I think, in different ways for years, but I think it's starting to weigh on him a lot more heavily. So they both are kind of isolating themselves from people around them in different ways. And it's only when they can find family in each other that they start to open up more and they want to live again. Yeah. I mean, up to this point, Hal is living in a sizable, we'll call it castle, with his demon friend, friend, who has his heart and a young apprentice who he can always kind of set himself above. Like him and Markle barely interact throughout the entire film. Markle respects Howell, I think. Howell, I think, likes Markle, but there's not an egalitarian relationship. No, it seems like Markle is the one who does most of the work in getting the money. Yeah. Markle stands in kind of as the wizard in a way. Yeah, he does. <laughs> He's kind of the adult. Of the house until Sophie shows up. Yeah. That is so ironically true now that you mention that. Yeah. <laughs> He's the one who handles every financial interaction we see in the movie. Yeah. Markle's great. <laughs> yeah. But you can see the effects of the depression. The castle is in shambles. It's completely filthy. Things are piled up. Nothing's being maintained. You can see the physical evidence of the depression everywhere around. Yeah, it's funny that, you know, the magical nature of this film. Like, Sophie just shows up in the house. Nobody's super surprised. Like, Markle's like, oh, are you the new cleaning lady? And Howell's just like, oh, cool, there's another person here? Like, I guess you can hang out and, like, do whatever you're going to do. Doesn't matter to me. I'm depressed. Yeah. Yeah. Sophie's just like, I'm your new cleaning lady. And Howell's just like, oh, who hired you? (laughs) And she's like, oh, Calcifer did. Right. (laughs) And he's just like, I I guess that works. (laughs) Howell's like, I just own the place. I don't have any control over what happens here. Yeah, Howell didn't, like, object at all. He's just like, you are? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this movie is fueled almost fully by whimsy, so... It's true. And I actually saw a lot of allusions to Jim Henson media, particularly, like, Labyrinth. I mean, I felt like Howell's character design was totally inspired by Jareth, David Bowie's character from Labyrinth. Parts of the castle were very reminiscent of, like, the Goblin Town. Yeah, yeah. Like, steampunk elements and stuff like that. Yeah, it's true. It even had, like, the big mouth and, like, the turrets and stuff that really (laughs) reminded me of Goblin Town. Yeah. It's all just held together with string and magic. (laughs) Yeah. And whimsy. Yeah. Whimsy is a good bonder. There's a lot of whimsy. Yeah. It's like glue. Oh, we didn't even mention... Howell's room is like a kid's room. That's right. There's stuffed animals all over his bed, toys and knickknacks, 
obscuring the walls so heavily you can't see them. It looks like a unicorn vomited all over the place. That's right. I know. And uh, there's all these bright lights of things that are lighting up and like shiny things around. That's right. And Sophie brings him warm milk in bed. He's too sad to drink it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's relatable. Yeah. It'll get cold. It'll get room temperature. Lukewarm milk. Yeah. Not good. Not good at all. Milk must be ice cold. That is that is my law. But don't put <laughs> ice in the milk. Not for me. That, no. That's a divisive thing. No, I don't like... I, well, I, I don't drink like milk the way I used to, but I don't like ice cubes in my milk, no. I've never liked it either. Warm milk is not terrible. Room temperature? Nah. That's a war crime. <laughs> in my mind, espresso fixes milk no matter the temperature. That's fair. Yeah. It's almost magical in that capacity. It's true. Yeah. It's a magic bean. <laughs> it is literally a magic bean. Yeah. I've said literally a lot this episode. <laughs> I sold our cow, our family cow, for these magic beans. That's espresso beans, you fucking... <laughs> you fucking genius. You've saved our family. They opened the first cafe, and it was perfect. It was giant. <laughs> So there are ways that Sophie seems to be aging gracefully when she says being old isn't so bad. Oh, I finally fit in. But then, To my clothes. Yeah, but, you know, she feels like she has a place in that form. Yeah. And a role she can fulfill. But when you think about it, she actually accepts it too quickly. That's fair. And that shows how depressed she is. Yes. Because she can't accept herself for the way she was. Yeah, that's like what I was saying with the blessings. She accepts it right away, instantly becomes more confident than she ever has talking to people. Yeah. And she sets goals that she sets out on. She starts doing things she never would have considered she was even capable of. Yeah. And she's barely capable of them as an old woman. I know, but she still does it anyway. And people start being nice to her, and she starts being appreciative of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, a young kid is like, oh, do you want some help getting down these stairs? She's like, no, I'm th- I'm okay. Wow, that was really nice. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so before she was basically too afraid to live, but being old gave her the confidence uh, that she needed to start reaching out to people. That's right. And then she learned to accept herself for who she is, and that's when she's able to love somebody else and express that and not just hide it. Yeah. And that's when she's kind of breaks the spell and uh, is in her young form, but she keeps her silvery hair. It's a reminder. It's just great. (laughs) And she teaches Hal to accept himself, too. And then they kiss. Oh, my God. It's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Well, kissing is a magical thing in this movie. It's how Sophie changes turn up head back to his terrible prince form. Yeah. Boo. But It's true. He seems happy about it, so I guess that's fine. It's true. And too bad for the prince. He was in love with Sophie. (laughs) Oh, it's true. I think it was like a platonic love. Maybe. Could have been. He was interested in more. (laughs) He was. That's why he was a little disappointed. He's like, you know, 
I can tell she's into hell, and that's cool. But, you know, maybe I'll fall in love again. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was kind of nice. It's just like, oh, there was a that was one of the side plots. That's neat. Yeah, <laughs> that is fun. You know, there's another, like, subtle little element of this that I like in magical stories where we see, like, these blob demons, right? And... Sophie is the type of person who notices things that aren't the way they should be. But there's this whole element where the townspeople are just like, oh, doesn't even come onto our radar. Like, Sophie even wonders, like, how is nobody else seeing this? Yeah. And Markle's just like, ah, oh, you know how it is with magic. Like, people don't notice it. And I always find that funny. Yeah, I like that. I think it speaks to... Some element of how people are IRL, there's a lot that people don't notice because they don't expect to see it, or they're so focused on something else or their own lives that they pass right by it, like animals in need. <laughs> yeah, the world that we're inhabiting here is this kind of, for lack of a better word, middle class fantasy. Yeah. Like, the the people of the town are... It's a steampunk kind of world, so they've got cars and planes, and there's seems to be a fair bit of comfort, despite the fact of the war going on, like especially in Sophie's town and some of the towns she visits, where Howell has his portals. Everyone's kind of content. Mm-hmm. And there's this nationalistic pride that is pervading their culture. Like people are really excited to see the warships coming back. Cause they're not thinking about the cost until they see the soldiers like abandoning ship from these burning vessels. But for a lot of people, it's like, Oh, we're so proud. Our military's doing so good against the enemy and all this. And it's kind of haunting, right? Yeah. Like how willing people are to just, Except the narrative that they're in the right and that this war can't really affect them. Just accepting what they're told without questioning it. Mm-hmm. Because they are content. Yeah. This, I mean, most of the characters are comfortable. Yeah. And so they don't push back against uh, what those in the governing bodies are doing. That's right. <laughs> it's a real danger. I liked that scene a lot. Because it highlighted how, like, empathetic Sophie is. How compassionate she is. Everyone is running to the ships to see all the soldiers jumping out. And everyone wants to see the banners that are getting dropped by an enemy plane right then. And Markle's like, oh, let's go check it out. And Sophie's like, no, I've seen all I can take. Yeah. She seems to be the only person who seems, like, overwhelmed by this. Or is upset by it at all. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think other things that really encapsulate that in her are she befriends the Witch of the Wastes. She does. Who is the very person who cursed her and who's been trying to kill Howell, who Sophie is in love with. That's right. And once the Witch of the Waste is stripped down and and her powers are taken away, Sophie at first takes pity on her and lets her come with them. And eventually that's when they become friends. Yeah. yeah. Even before that, they kind of had like a rivalry, which. Well, they're pining over of, the same wizard. It's true. 
But, like, I feel like rivalry sort of borders on friendship sometimes, and theirs did especially. Because Sophie was, like... Certainly in media. Yeah, in media, anyway. Sophie was, like, cheering her on to get up the stairs. That's right. Yeah. There was an antagonistic but kind of encouraging vibe to that. It's true. And then when they were getting inside, the Witch of the Waste was like a mess from exhaustion. Sophie's like, come on, pull yourself together. You've been waiting for this for like ever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna meet the king. Yeah, yeah. They didn't know at first that it was a trap. But... Yeah. But she's like trying to help her out anyway. And you know, Cass, you mentioned it was a trap. I mean, that is part of the sinister nature of this, right? They are being conscripted. Yeah. The witches and wizards are being conscripted into fighting this war. They don't really know the consequences. Just like how the townspeople don't think about how the militarism they're surrounded by is a propagandistic attempt to fight a war that is that has no stakes for the common person. It's like, okay, a prince is gone. So we all have to give our lives because of one dude? And we don't even know that the other side took him. He's just disappeared. Yeah. It's true. And part of that, part of that interaction of going to see Madame Suleiman, which I thought was really interesting, is Howell has been on the run from her for a long time, living under aliases and things like that. The reason he feels like he has to turn in at all, he points out something in his room it's a contract where he said, I made an oath back in the day that I would go and turn in if I was requested. Right. So we have to go back and you tell them I'm not going to do it. <laughs> it's like, you've been on the run this whole time. You're effectively a fugitive. Why yeah. do you feel the need to do this at all? Yeah. <laughs> but he still, for some reason, feels like he has to do it. Mm-hmm. Only to run away again. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh no, I did the thing. I, I did the thing. Well, he hasn't completed his character arc yet at this point. I know, but it was it was very um contradictory. It is, yeah. I mean, I think Howell is kind of an experiment in contradictions. Yeah, it's true. But that is a really good scene. Going to the palace is one of the most interesting moments because we're getting a lot of the backstory. We're getting these glimpses into Sophie's psychology and her, like you said, a rivalry with the Witch of the West that or of the Waste that kind of turns into an interesting friendship. We're getting this thing where Howell Sophie the whole time thinks Howell is Heen, the dog. Yeah. And she's like talking to Heen and like he is Howell, but then Howell comes in the form of the king. Yeah. And it's like, oh, Madam Solomon you know, war is bad, actually. I'm beginning to realize that we're just killing a bunch of people unnecessarily. And he has this whole, like, elaborate plot. Then the king the actually comes into the room and is just kind of bemused by it. He's like, oh, is this another illusion that looks like me? How quaint is that? Anyways, off to go murder more innocent people. Yeah. Yeah. And that's when Howell stages this big elaborate escape that ends up expanding his family even more and including the witch of the waste now that she's been magically reduced in her power and, and made it, to actually be her own age because of course age is also a recurring motif throughout the film yeah. it was sophie that brought them with her too right because sophie has that empathy we're talking about yeah that's right 
All right, guys. Well, this is the type of movie I could probably talk about all day, but we should probably wrap things up and head into the smithy. Welcome to the Smithy, where we each forge a rating for this movie after we share an epic moment or feature from the film. Cass, do you want to tell us your epic moment or feature and then give us a rating from 1 to 10 moving castles? Okay. (laughs) My epic moment is when Howell and Sophie were facing off against Madame Solomon, and she was kind of trying to set the trap for him, um, and there were the little spirits dancing around him which means they're trying to strip him of his power and so if he tries to use that's not all they're trying to strip him of if he tries to use more of that power while he's in that trap it'll get stripped from him more quickly and he does try to transform into his crow form to attack Solomon when she's entrapped him and Sophie tells him you know Hold on to yourself. Don't give in. And that's when he like listens to her. She hugs him, and Aww. that's when he like is able to escape the trap with the help of Sophie. And I thought that was pretty great because it showed their love and friendship toward one another. I really liked this movie. This watch through. I saw it when it first came out all those years ago, and. I didn't like it at the time. I I thought it was too much like all the other Studio Ghibli films and that it wasn't unique enough. And I was not a fan of the pacing. This time I had a totally different opinion of it. Yeah, back then you were young, dumb, and full of opinions. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. And I realized that there's a lot more going on in this movie than I gave it credit for before and that it is unique in a lot of ways and that it has a lot of really meaningful messages in it that hit home for me like we've talked about um the art is really beautiful too we didn't mention that before and I really like the way the characters grow throughout the movie yeah so I'm gonna give this a Eight out of ten moving castles, because I think it deserves a good rating. That's as good a reason as any. Nice. How about you, Jack? Do you want to give us your epic moment or feature and then a rating from one to ten moving castles? Yes, I do. We already mentioned the scene. It's the scene where they are in the flower fields at Howell's safe place. Nice. That was given to him by his uncle. and. Uh, Howell is like, oh, I put this door in here so that you can come visit this place whenever you want. And you can pick all these flowers. They'll grow back. You could open a flower shop. I think you'd be really good at it. And she's like, why do I get the feeling like you're about to leave us? And he doesn't. He doesn't deny it. And he keeps trying to change the conversation to being like positive and fun and stuff. Yeah. But he really just kind of like hits the nail in the head of like her suspicions and she's like oh so you are leaving yeah and there was that great interaction where he keeps trying to make it like a positive thing because running away has always been his solution 
to a problem, and he thinks he's doing a great job of setting up his new family so that they'll be fine when he leaves them. Until he sees... She she mentions, like, oh, yeah, why would you ever stick around with, like, some ugly person like me, basically. He's like, what? No, you're beautiful. And then she says that line, at least when you're old, you have nothing to lose, and she's an old woman again. Like you said, he's devastated by that. Yeah. Because it's horrible. He thought he was doing the right thing, and then he sees how much he just hurt the person who cares the most about him. Yeah. It's just like, oh, shit. That's that's probably, like, one of the best scenes in, like, many movies yeah. to me. Yeah. It's really good. And he, he takes that really seriously, and I think that's when he has the change of heart of, like, oh, I need to fight for these people. Yeah. And fight to stick around. He needed a reason to fight. Yeah, because running, he saw, was not the right thing in that situation. So that was just awesome. Just a perfect scene, pretty much. And the movie, its pacing is really fast. The scenes kind of come out like bullets. It's two hours, and it's really fast-paced, I think, the whole time. But all the characters are really great. I love the themes. I feel pretty much when I watch this, I feel like crying from the moment it begins to the end. It's just so good. But like in a good so way, right? Reasons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, because it's sad or it's really touching or it's really happy. Yeah. You know? So I'm going to have to give this one a 10 out of 10 moving castles. Wow. Because it's just one of the films that emotionally touches me more than like most others do something about it just works nice so there it is but what about you jamie what is your epic moment and or feature and rating out of 10 moving castles tell us jamie please well i'm glad you asked Cass has already touched on my epic feature and it is the art and animation yeah this is a studio ghibli film i don't need to tell you it's gorgeous but this movie is fucking gorgeous yeah the animation i think is some of the best that the studio has produced the castle is so cool i love what i'm gonna call the henson inspiration the interesting steampunk world the motion is so fluid the environments are so cool and there's so much detail i mean you guys talked about howl's room everything throughout his castle feels lived in and interesting the towns they go to are a cool, colorful mishmash of this kind of Victorian steampunk English aesthetic mixed with some kind of rural folksy neighborhoods. And you get these gorgeous natural shots or scenes like in the flower field or as Sophie's going up the mountain, you get these terrifying hellscapes right when Hal is flying into war in his demon bird form and it's like firebombs and smoke and death you get such a gamut of environments and looks and it just pops the whole way yeah when he was going through the black portal i actually thought he was going to some hell-like demon realm before I realized he was going to a war zone later. I mean, you weren't wrong. Yeah. To begin with. And then as far as the rating goes, I think I'm going to give this movie 8 out of 10 moving castles. It is a bit long for me, 
Just in general. Dos huevos. Yes. That means two hours. <laughs> <laughs> it's It doesn't feel overly long, but I actually had a different sense than Jack did. To me, it does drag a little bit in parts. And it's not necessarily in a bad way. We're getting a lot of character building. I'm not sure where I would cut it for time a bit, but it just... I did find myself wandering a little bit during the film. And, you know, still super enjoyed it. Really, like I said, the animation's amazing. The story's really fun. You know what? I'm, I'm going to change. I'm talking myself up. I'm going to give it 9 out of 10 castles. Oh, because, because of the anti-war messaging. Yeah. That was called by some critics overly simplistic. I actually think that it does a really good job of showing... How somebody like Howell, a former effectively soldier, copes with PTSD and trauma. Yeah. He's not coming at this like, oh, I'm somebody who just has the privilege of saying war is bad. Howell knows war is bad. Howell knows the depths of depravity in some people's hearts and minds. Yeah. And he is affected by the world around him. It's true. In a really profound way. I think this movie deserves 9 out of 10 castles because it just does so many things with such a, a strong emotional core. I'm only really knocking it for those for the length because to me it dragged a bit. But I think that'll do it for us here at Swords and Satire. As always, we'd like to thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed the show, maybe consider following us on social media at Swords and Satire on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That way you can keep up with the show, see what we're watching next, and let us know what you thought about the episode. And if you tune in next week, you'll get to hear us talking about episode eight, the final episode of season one of The Wheel of Time. That's going to be really exciting. They finally get to that heckin' eye of the world, I'm sure, and just see what's going on with that old dragon there. They wheel all the time, I'm positive. Hey, I'm dragon here. Or am I? <laughs> But, like we said, a great way to support support a great way to support the show is on our Patreon. But if you don't have a few extra bucks to send the way of your favorite podcasters, another excellent way you can support the show is by telling your family or found family about it. Oh, because the best way to uh, enjoy your favorite art is with your favorite people. That's true. Oh, boy. That sounds pretty good to me. It sounds pretty awesome. So, go out and watch it with them. Go and listen to our episode with them. It's pretty hype. That's right. That's right. Well, until next time. Hail, Hail Crom! Crom!